Hey, everybody, I know that there is not a lot of good news in the world today. So at this point, the best we can really do is uh, get little micro victories and hold on to them like they're gold chalices. Yeah, it's come to that. Today's micro victory. Well, it's almost October. I know it doesn't seem like much, but I love October. And even though it isn't October just yet, the micro victory is it soon will be. We're scraping for good news, I know, but it really is good news because I love Halloween and demons and monsters and werewolves and murder. Uh, by the way, I am still single, in case you were wondering, but I really do. I really do love those things, and October is a month of pure, dark magic, and I thought it's the perfect time to promote my new young adult book, Malro and the Midnight Organ Fight. It's a novel about two teenage detectives trying to solve a series of murders one bloody summer in San Francisco. There's murder and kung fu and swords and organ removal and thrash metal and what else is there? Oh, weird Russians swinging cleavers. Uh, there's also a love story in there. And the fact that I was able to get that in means I'm either a really great writer or a really terrible one. You tell me. Look, I want you to buy the book from your local indie bookstore, but I'm also going to give you a chance to get one right now for free. All you have to do is send me a note and tell me how you're going to be spending your Halloween. The best answer gets a free signed copy of the book sent to your house. What are you doing on the best night of the year? Let me live vicariously through your Halloween plans. Drop me a line at editor at stereoembersmagazine.com. By the way, I have gotten one invitation to go to a sexy vampire party, but it's in Norway. I really want to go. I feel like I'd be stepping into a fantasy I've dreamed of my entire life, but how am I getting to Oslo in the middle of a pandemic? That actually might be the opening line of my next book. And if I go to that party, well, let's just say that book might have pictures. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. of my guest today on the program, John Vanderslice. Let me tell you a little bit about John Vanderslice. All right, so this is probably not going to surprise you, uh, but I did not invent podcasting. I didn't, but I almost did. <laughs> I really, this is true. I almost invented podcasting in 1992. Here's the story. I had spent my entire college life as the music director of our campus radio station. And after four years, it had turned into a kind of demented indie rock bunker. I, I spent all my time there. When I finished college and I looked around and I saw, 
you know, everyone had their girlfriends or their boyfriends uh, congratulating them at graduation. I thought, why am I still single? Then I thought about the radio station. I went, oh, yes, that explains everything. Anyway, there were these tapes that came in uh, of radio programs like, I don't know, one was called Bug Radio, one was called The Big Backyard, and all they were were programs that were syndicated that they wanted us to air, right? It was like automated programming to fill holes in the schedule where you didn't have shows. So Bug Radio was really cool. Uh, The Big Backyard was super awesome. It was like from Australia. It had all these cool Australian bands I'd never heard of. Um, There were others I can't remember. But anyway, we used these, and they were great. So after college, I started to think about it, and I thought, I have all these contacts in the music industry. Why don't I start my own syndicated radio show? Why don't I just do it out of my apartment, and I will record it on my Walkman? I have one of these Walkman um, that you could actually record on. And then you could dub tapes on it. It was this kind of high-tech thing that I had. Uh, Looking back on it now, it's about as high-tech as a Viewmaster. But still, at the time, it was high-tech. So I actually did this. I set up all these interviews. And I found that there was trouble with the recording. The hum of uh, the apartment I was living in was palpable. I don't know why. I don't know what was humming. But if I went into the closet and did my did my recordings in there, you couldn't hear the hum. So I went into the closet, did all the intros for the shows. I had to kind of angle in this really weird way. I was sweating, but I was pulling it off. And I started to record my syndicated radio show. This is 1992. This is this is like the uh, the early version of podcasting. I didn't know it at the time, but this is what I was doing. Why am I telling you this? Well, because my first guest was John Vanderslice. He was in a band called MK Ultra, and he did the interview. He was so nice. I mean, he was so cool to me. And the show was really good, and I was done with it, and I thought, okay, I've recorded my show. I've got John Vanderslice of MK Ultra. It came out great ready to go. And I went, oh, nobody wants to syndicate my show. (laughs) Why would it be syndicated? I don't have a name. No one knows who I am. I'm a 22-year-old kid from the Bay Area uh, who has no idea how to syndicate a radio program. I didn't think that far. I thought, if I record it, they will come. Well, they didn't. So the MK Ultra episode with John Vanderslice, I want to say it never aired, but there was no air for it to air on. <laughs> I didn't have any outlet to do that. I didn't think about the marketing of it. So obviously, this is before Instagram and before the internet, so there was no way to spread the word. I mean, you just kind of, I guess, word of mouthed it, and uh, I didn't know how to do that. So my dilemmas were, were kind of manifold. How do you spread the word? How do you mass produce a cassette uh, that you've recorded in your closet, um, you know, to make it sound okay for people to listen to? Because the sound quality on The Big Backyard or Bug Radio was really good. It was studio quality. Me, no, not studio quality at all. It was uh, a guy in an apartment closet 
uh, trying to escape the hum. You know, I could not make this thing sound okay. I mean, it sounded all right, but nobody was going to air it. So contacting radio stations, telling them who I was, mass-producing cassettes, it was overwhelming. So after three episodes, I don't even remember who the other guests were, but the first one was John. After three episodes, I decided to shelve the project. I thought, I'll wait uh, 25 years and I'll start my own podcast where it will be easier to spread the word. And there will be a thing called TikTok where I'll promote this podcast through interpretive dance. (laughs) So it never happened. I have the cassette uh, somewhere um, of the John Vanderslice episode with MK Ultra. The other ones, God knows where they are. Maybe I'll digitize it and you'll be able to hear the origins of podcasting. You know, the medium I didn't invent. All right, so enough of my thing. Uh, I thought that was an important story to tell you because talking to John Vanderslice all these years later is an incredibly cool way for all of this to come full circle. So let me actually tell you about John Vanderslice. The Florida-born John Vanderslice knocked out an economics degree at the University of Maryland, and then, as many stories go, he headed west to California. Once there, he formed MK Ultra, and that band put out three really incredible albums, including their swan song, The Dream Is Over. They also appeared uh, on the first podcast ever invented. <laughs> in 1997, Vanderslice founded Tiny Telephone Recording Studio in the Mission District of San Francisco. He proved you can do a lot with two rooms and 3,000 square feet, recording everyone from Death Cab for Cutie to Slater Kinney to Spoon. As for his own work, in 2000, Vanderslice started a pretty impressive winning streak of solo albums, including his first effort, Mass Suicide Occult Figurines, and others like Life and Death of an American Four Tracker, and Dagger Beach. Vanderslice's music is a delicious and inventive blend of woozy electronica, fuzzy synths, elegant guitars, and fractured pop set to poetic lyrics that are as cryptic as they are crushing. Truly one of the most inventive, idiosyncratic, and melodic artists out there. Vanderslice's new EP, Eep, is out now, and it's nothing short of wonderful. And you know what's just as wonderful as John Vanderslice's music? Talking to John Vanderslice. So let's do that right now. Here we are, having a chat on Stereo Embers, the podcast. I've been great, and I mean, I'm driving down the five in California because all the wildfires, it's pretty fucking dystopian. But other than, than that and, and all the other craziness going on, I'm, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm, uh, I'm just outside of Berkeley. and uh, Yes, you know. So I know, man. It's pretty fucked. It's fucked. I was just in Oakland for the week, and I, it's just like even that sunset last night was fucking crazy. I know. It was nuts. I know. It was yeah, difficult. I mean, it's it's so depressing. Yeah, there's there's a lot of depressing stuff going on. Um, I'm trying to find the silver lining. <laughs> it's, it must be somewhere. I know. I mean, the only thing I can think of is that life 
in the aggregate is like a zero sum game, right? So like, right. like you're going to have years like 2020 and then who knows, maybe, you know, maybe, listen, Biden isn't a, 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 anyone's dream, but like not having Trump and maybe ending the 20 year drought cycle in California next year and like just getting, not having a million acres burn in two weeks and you know, maybe just like the resurgence of some kind of like progressive wing of the Democratic Party, like any, you know, we'll take whatever we can get. You know what oh, I mean? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I know you don't remember this because it was very a small footnote, not even a, a footnote of a footnote. But I spoke to you in 93, you know, because we're, we're both at the time East Bay boys. And, uh, you know, and I was thinking about how the last time we spoke, uh, you know, Clinton was in office. The world seemed okay. Uh, there, yeah. were, we were young men. There was possibility because we're, we're the same age. Yeah. There was possibility yeah. in front of us, and now we connect. You know, thirty years later, and uh, it's fucking hell, man. Yeah, and and think about this: like we've been at war with like you know Iraq and Afghanistan for decades, right? So we went in '93. America was not in perpetual war mode, which is like a complete like like that's the one glaring thing. When you mention that, I'm just like, whoa, like yeah, like those were boom years. First off, those two Clinton you know presidencies were were boom years, and like we you know before 9/11, we just weren't cascading. You know, we've spent three three trillion in Afghanistan. You know, like like that's. You know, because we wonder, like, what happened to this country? And that's a big part of the narrative. That's where all of the money just keeps getting siphoned off. You know, you're like, what happened to the richest country on, uh, in the world? Like, in theory, right? Well, you know, I spend so much psychic energy thinking about how this guy is going to go. And uh, it's consuming. There, It's like, it almost feels that there's no time to prevent it from seeping into your art. I know, I know. I know I totally agree. And and there I don't know if there's any way to prevent this stuff. Like I mean we're I was just in in Oakland working on a new record and it's like an incredibly agitating uh record so far and I'm not sure if I don't you know good bad who cares. We don't really worry about the No, it you just move on. you know you make another brick and you like you try to build some beautiful wall. That's all you can do. But like I just know that I'm so nervous all the time now. And I I kind of like oscillate between like being like very, like having a lot of free floating anxiety to stone cold, depressed, like 14 years old style, you know, like just like numb, like lifeless, sleeping all the time. Just like, I, I just can't get, I can't, I can't get comfortable, you know. Are there days where you just can't make art? You know, are there days where music? Oh God, yeah. Really? Yeah. Yes. After I made the EP, I really crashed. I mean, I was, I had a rough, like everyone, the first month of COVID was like, to me, was like a serious unraveling of my mental health, which I, you know, fought dearly to be sane and to be happy and to be healthy, you know, like I, and so have you, like we all have, right? We've really, I've put things in place to, 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 to become a healthier and, and more coherent person to myself. And when COVID hit, it just unraveled. No more touring. The studio closed down in San Francisco. Like not having that like connection with friends. Like I was seeing someone out of town. Like you know, it's everything was just canceled. And 
um, I, you know, it took me about a month to get like, kind of like, I don't know, to regroup and to realize that I will never have this much time again. And there was something like uniquely important about that. So I made the EP and then in the middle of making the EP, I was just like, whoa, these boom times are going to continue forever. Like, I feel like I can just keep making art, you know, like, like, like this is like going to be like a, like a renewable resource here. And then right when the EP was finished, I just crashed and then went into another, you know, two, three weeks, maybe a month of pretty serious depression. And I, I really couldn't even even go into the room. You know, I have a very small recording room at home. and I couldn't even walk into it. Like it, it filled me with so much dread to look at an instrument and, and like, wow, where did that come from? And I know I've talked to a lot of musicians who've had that same experience, you know. How do you reapproach it then? How, you know, the days where you go, oh, I can pick up the guitar, I can move the knobs. Um, are those days kind of fleeting or you can't, you know, you can't even see them coming. They kind of come and go. Yeah, you know what's interesting? It, it does feel like it's in like a longer cycle. And I think that what happens is that, you know, for me, I just, I started, once I realized, I was like, uh-oh, here we go, another storm is, is coming. I just kind of double down in what I usually do, which is my normal routine to kind of fend off, you know, like, like de de declining mental health. is. I mean, I run five days a week, so I usually kind of ramp up the running and the working out because that is just so important to me. I just, it like, if I do that, there's just a minute, I can't go down to like a two out of four out of 10. And that is a huge difference. You know what I mean? So yeah, I kind of double down on that. And then I also start going hiking and going swimming in the ocean. And if I do those things, it's just like a, it's just like a, a, a safety net. When I'm outside. I'm also connecting with friends. I'll always go hiking with friends. I'll go to beach with friends and I'll start to fill up my social calendar with like wholesome, you know, like, let me make you dinner on this night. Let's go and start to fill up my social calendar with like meaningful, important, connective, like hours. And if I do that, I can make it, you know, a couple weeks through, I can like start to see on the other side. And the second I get a little glimmer of hope and conversely, the other thing too, if you, if, if I ever, if I ever want to just jumpstart it, if you have something in the calendar, I just don't blow deadlines ever. So I was definitely not to go to Oakland to record this record, but it had been in the calendar for four months. So I, as it gets closer, your just mind starts clear, start getting nervous. And you start having that fear of like, uh-oh, I'm going to make a bad record. And then that kind of like, it's like a slap to the face. You know, I was just like, okay, I got to write and get ready here. So you're saying that if you, if you have a mark to hit, you'll hit it. Exactly. It's almost like, it's like, if I'm, I'm just like an unerring for better or for worse, like company man. Do you know what I mean? Like, like yeah. I'm just like, I'm just like going to show up and do the job and like, I mean, the cool thing is that the company isn't, it's not like Chevron. It's like actually just me making art. So it's like a, hopefully a net positive, but like, you know, like I do, I am really good at not letting myself down and letting like people who I work with down. I mean, I've never canceled a show before and man, I've wanted to cancel like 200 of them. So, you know, like I, I just know that I always 
feel better if I am forced into doing something. So, it, I mean, I feel totally different after a week of recording. Now, in the past, when you've had, say, you were feeling a little depressed artistically or emotionally, did you handle did you handle it the same way, or has COVID sort of made you, uh, you know, more sort of energetically going towards rebooting? You know, it's wild is that I would handle it in the same way, but I have like kind of like a, a an episode within two days or one day or hours. Like I'm just not, I'm like, I started getting depressed when I was 11. I'm like, fuck that shit. Like no more, you know? So my entire life is kind of like built around, like not, you know, like staying in that space for very long because I simply can't, can't down that, that spiral anymore. And, and so before COVID, I was like really resilient, you know, barring some like, you know, like someone dying, very, very strong. And then when COVID hit, I was like regressed. I mean, big time. And I'm sure everyone regressed. Yeah, I think COVID has kind of amplified what n- normal depression and made it something kind of supersized. Yeah, yeah. Like and immovable, you know, because you don't you also don't have any. I mean, Every, I get it when people talk about their own lives because I have that too. But the problem for me is that I would start reading stuff about, let's say, like like essential households or like actually driving COVID because they simply can't afford not to work. Or you start to get in, interested in the history of like minimum income and like as a viability in American politics. And you realize like, oh, God, there's no chance that anything like that would ever take hold in this country <laughs> you know right. like like it, it kind of like opened up the you to like realizing and and a lot of people would would amplify this of like it kind of showed how even your most cynical vision of america is actually like uh, maybe an, an upgrade to what it really is and that was a horrifying realization yeah and there's another realization because you and i are the same age that like I don't feel the limitlessness when because I'm a writer I don't feel like I have all the time in the world to write fifty books I kind of feel now that I'm pressed for time in a way I never used yeah. to feel before. Yes, yes, absolutely, hundred percent. And like the thing is that because we have the illusion that our plans are just like you know like you have something you have like a conference scheduled you have a visit from a friend you have like you look at your calendar and it's filled with these like little treats and these like some are are like um some are far away but it's all this just string of events that just that are unyielding and that have kind of like given your life form and and like this kind of sweetness to it and then when covid hit and the calendar's got wiped out i was like fuck first off we're kind of post time but we're also like like this is real the clock's really ticking we're gonna lose potentially two years to this you know what i mean and like yeah we're 53 man i'm like i don't want to lose two years of my life like i could die next year you know what i mean like who knows what's gonna happen right right i was talking to one of my heroes i was talking to the jazz butcher a couple weeks ago he told he told me that he's always been kind of future blind and i started thinking like maybe i've been future blind too like maybe i didn't really plan the way I should have planned for yeah. life. How do you, do you feel that way as well? Oh God. Yeah. I mean, I feel like in, in some ways I, I have like the, 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 maybe it's good, maybe it's bad, but I simply can't imagine that I'm not like a 15 year old 
kid who listens to like Led Zeppelin three and smokes weed, like somehow that person for better, for worse, I mean, maybe for worse, I mean, maybe this is the person you need to be if you're going to drive around and play shows and make weird records. Like maybe you need to be like kind of a, a broken, you know what I mean? Like, like, like stuck in amber, you know, human being, but there is also something about that that prevents like, I don't have a savings account. I don't really care. I simply, I have a cal. I assume that it's going to cover issues if I have, like, health problems. But I have no real knowledge of what that looks like. And I haven't really, I mean, I only have a will because my mom basically, like, put a gun to my head and made me, like, get a will. Like, like I, I'm not really actually being really about, uh, about being, like, a human you know, moving through time and like what that actually means. Like, I don't know. Did a conventional life ever appeal to you? Cause it never really appealed to me. Well, I, you know, it's funny because I, I just, I think that I would have been a poor player in that life. Do you know, I, I know that I'm, I'm like, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have gotten the, um, like excitement that I kind of needed and, the uh, instability and the chaos that I'm kind of like addicted to. I, I know that I would have, would have bailed. You know what I mean? Like no matter what, if I had like, let's say that I got married and, and I had kids, I, I just know that like I would have failed those humans at some point because that is the story. If you're going to make 13 records in 20 years, you're going to like, most likely you're going to fail a lot of people. You know what I mean? And like, you're probably going to fail your bandmates and your, the people that are around you and, and the relationships that, that you're in, at least at one point, you know, like everyone, you know, is like, is like driven to like extremes when they're do when they're, when they're living in that way. And, and, and I, again, I don't think this is good or bad. I just think it's like, you're, you're just a, maybe a weirder person. And, and yeah, so, I, I mean, honestly, there is something I am torn between loving routine and kind of like the stability. And then, um, I mean, again, this might be a mental health thing where like, if I'm in a certain place with my anxiety, I like, I want calmness and stability and reassurance. And then when I'm like really, really comfortable and happy, I need chaos. So that, that I see, so yeah, that's what I mean by unstable. I just don't think I ever could have like made, made it work. Well, you're saying when you were when you're comfortable, you need chaos. Yes, yes. Like I kind of like I need, and that's why tour is so valuable because it's like you can just default to just like you're gonna have like adventures over and over. It's like endless. You're gonna have these like amazing, strange, weird trips that happen that are really work trips. You know, it's like the weirdest job, really. You know, and like. That's magic and it's addicting and it's also destabilizing. Yeah, and it and it can also be scary because it's sort of like you know, uh, I know you had some experiences out there on the road that weren't so fun, um, and there must have been moments where you went, I not that you wanted to be Andy Partridge and never play live again, but you must have been frustrated and nervous about about what perils uh, the road can bring. Oh yeah, you know what's interesting is that. The things that I worried about, really, I never, it wasn't drugs or alcohol 
never had a problem being in a super faithful monogamous relationship. That's kind of my default. So that that wasn't an issue either. Simply that it makes you have such a disconnected life. You can't really plan a lot of things that normal people can plan because you're simply just leaving town over and over and over again. Yeah, and and the issue of hearing is kind of a crucial one because you know the ear the ears are such an important thing. How did you? get your head around the idea of protecting your your ears yeah i'm that, that fear is also driven by being an engineer and producer and i i know many engineer producers that and you do too some of them are very famous and they have severe hearing damage yeah and their work is really suffering because of it so this is like a common hidden like almost like it's like a shameful part of like what happens in audio. Um, and it's wild. I'm like, even like wearing earplugs, sometimes you can be like sound checking and you would have like feedback that was so loud that I would have like a headache for three or four hours. And I knew that I just like lost, you know, like points. I got hit points and I, at some point my hearing's going to be dead and it's like a, it's like a video game. Like you're gonna like, you know, you don't get any of this stuff back, you know? Um, and I, like, I stopped playing in bands was really part of how I got to it. Like I just decided like I was only gonna play solo shows that were unamplified. And that's where I got interested in playing living room shows. It's interesting. I saw the Blue Airplanes at Slim's in 1990 and they were the loudest band I've ever seen. And yeah. My ear, my ears were out for like three days, but I was wondering, like, yeah. I wonder how it was for the blue airplanes that they must have been, you know, at night after night. I mean, getting older in this business, I mean, your ears are not built to be pummeled that way. Yeah, well, I I guarantee you that the players in blue airplanes are, have like severe and traumatizing tinnitus. Like, there's just there's simply no way around it. Our our the physical nature of of like an eardrum. It's just it's not capable of of withstanding like like you know SPLs amplitude shit for very long like you know decades and you're done and, and the thing is is that if you talked I don't really have tinnitus but I I toured with someone that did and they like kind of had like a semi breakdown because of it I mean you essentially have background noise that is it's kind of like it's it, first off, it alienates you from people because you're, you, you, you can't really hear people talking in like social environments. I mean, that's part of the reason why Howard Hughes went insane is that he, he lost his hearing in airplane crashes. And, you know, it, it isolated him greatly. And that let, like fed into his like germophobia and all kinds of shit, you know. And I just think it can be like a really, really difficult thing if, thing to deal with if one of your main joys is like listening to music without the sound of like 4,000 crickets screaming in your ear, you know? Yeah, and also the, the physical health of a working musician is a vital thing. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's, it's maybe not, it's maybe a really bad thing to do to your body. I mean, I remember being on like long tours. We'd go out for like six, seven weeks. And I remember being in the middle of the tour thinking I'm like killing myself. Like, and keep in mind that I've never had one sip of alcohol on tour and I've never done drugs on tour once. And I love drugs. 
like I'm a super fan. I'm a huge fan of like thoughtful drug experimentation and drug use and like, but I never did that stuff ever once. And I toured with mostly people who were pretty thoughtful about what they put in their body and they were dying. You know what I mean? Like they barely survived it. And then of course we know tons of people that were like dragging around like real drug habits, you know, like through customs and like, you know what I mean? Like, like, or like just, they were severe alcoholics that had nothing but like access to endless amounts of free alcohol every single night. And it's like, fuck man, like no one gets out of this shit a lot, but especially if you don't have some boundaries, you know? How were you able to compartmentalize? I I really admire that ethic where it's like, I'm not going to bring the drugs and the alcohol into the creative space. I'll wait till I'm done and I'll go home and do it. I, I've never heard anyone say that. Well, my motto from early on, because first off, I had, I grew up with a, an older brother and they were like, like my, not my brother, but his friends were tied were tied into um like like a lot of like old dead touring scene and they were doing like a tremendous amounts of psychedelics i mean like heroic shit and they were mostly like pretty fucked up drug use <laughs> i have to say it was like kind of as like a 12, 13 year old realizing like, whoa, like as I was just coming online and getting interested in drugs, I was like, kind of like looking at these like real life casualties that were like only five or six or seven years older than me, but like seeing really profound cognitive damage from, but I mean, they were epically like tripping, you know what I mean? And and like in, in continuously and and so I saw like a certain amount of like disrespect for drug use early on. And I saw it. And also I was, there were a few heroin addicts. Uh, there were definitely some alcoholics in my, in my family. And I was just kind of able to see the end game of drug addiction. And so coupled with that was, I was, I'm a very like visual and kind of like, like, I'm interested in like the senses and music and and like exploring what what psychedelic drugs can can possibly you know teach me and I also you know I'm like a like a like a traveler and I'm I like to try shit and I'm like I'm up for it man you know what I mean if people are jumping off a rock in a swimming hole I'm like fucking climbing up there as I'm arriving you know like so there is that part of me too but so my motto early on was do less drugs so you can do more drugs. In other words, consciously weigh out if you're going to take mushrooms, well, maybe you should take a tenth of what you think the dose is, weigh it out, and then next time take a fifth of what you think the dose is, and next time think, take a half of what you think the dose is. John, your impulse control is very good. Yes, that's very true from the beginning. Absolutely. But, but I, you know, but I grew up with parents who were alcoholics. So like uh, my impulse with control was good, not because I was like a, like a thoughtful, like smart intellectual kid, but because I saw true, true despair and heartache from the end game of, of like severe alcoholism. You know, like I I actually saw the, because listen, everything in the beginning 
like even probably like a serial killer in the beginning is like happy you know what i mean like like everyone's happy in the beginning <laughs> it's like it's like how do you like look at the end you know like like so i just i knew that like there is a, there's a cost to everything you know I, I, like if you eat like four donuts there's a it's a price it's a cost and what's the is it worth it you know what i mean and i love donuts so maybe you should have two you know what i mean like 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 so i just thought like again do less drugs so you could do more so I don't have a substance problem, but I do MDMA a couple times a year. I do pharmaceutical, AKA pure cocaine when I want to. I have it locked in safe. I microdose LSD. I smoke weed. I drink alcohol a couple times a week, but I'm complete and I have the ability to go off those substances for months without really caring. But because my philosophical framework is oh, I'll just stop doing this for two months and I'll start again. I never had like a weird, oh, I, I maybe I should cut down. You know, like I don't really understand that. You have your whole life to do drugs. So why act like you're in a hurry? Like we don't sit down at a meal and eat until we throw up. Like that's like just fucking weird. You know right. what I mean? Like like you can you can actually be normal about drugs. And listen, I don't blame human desires and appetites. I blame the drug war. I dream, blame the federal government. I blame people who are criminalizing drug use and not seeing like excess as simply as a health issue, you know? And like, because what it does is it makes people have this really weird, secretive, like freaked out relationship with their, with their own drug use, you know? And it also makes people, instead of having this like thing of like, hey, maybe I should actually like try Kratom or I should try ayahuasca and see what I can learn about my traumatic, you know, like upbringing. Instead, they're just like, oh, there's only one drug and that drug is alcohol. So I should just drink this drug until I'm basically physically dependent on it. And it like rots my fucking brain because it's neurotoxic. You know what I mean? Like that's the yeah. problem. Yeah. And I think that we, we sort of, in this country, we sort of cultivate alcoholism on, on college campuses across the, you know, oh, from- absolutely. Right. You, you see these people just yeah. sort of like um, immersing themselves in just alcoholism. And yeah, um, it's like a training ground. Yeah, absolutely. And like that, like that drug just creates violence. It's violence, rapes, like just think about the byproduct, deaths, like traffic accidents. It's just like a fucking joke of a drug. It literally is a, is a nightmare. Yeah. And it's interesting also that. You know, when you when you're dealing with people who think of it as something forbidden, it almost makes them want it more. Yes, of course. That's why I wanted to smoke weed when I was 12 years old. To me, it was just like, wow, this is like like something that must be unbelievable because I have a cop in this classroom that's telling me that it's like the worst thing possible for me to put in my body. And yet my intuition is that this guy is full of shit. You know what I mean? Like, right. like the whole thing was designed to like, instead of now where it's like normalized or like, I don't know, like Dutch chill, Dutch kids are not really, they don't really give a shit. Some of the our parents do, you know what I mean? Like, I just, I just think all this stuff, if it's normalized, you can actually like have conversations about what it's actually doing to your body and to your brain. And like, maybe you can try to like have a more nuanced relationship with it. The hand that's cut this far. I'd like to
was your relationship with when you first came to California? Did it did un, did it sort of unlock you creatively and artistically? I uh, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, absolutely. Because I grew up in Florida and like the East Coast, and then I lived in Maryland. You know, later when I, my mom got remarried, we moved to Maryland. So I the East Coast is great, but it's like. There's a reason why people go to California, man. It feels like there's something that happens in your brain when you're going west. First off, the first time I drove across the country, I was just like, whoa. I had no idea that this country was actually this big and that there was just this, like, you know, the Amer driving through, like, the southwest. It's like, it's insane. Like, you see photos of this shit, but when you're in the middle of, like, Zion or whatever, you you realize how vast this country is. You're driving over the Rockies. And then you realize how far away you are from everyone that knows you. You know, like I came to California and no one knew who I was. You know, I didn't have any friends that could kind of like check me and be like, ah, eh, that's not you. You're not a singer, man. You're like a fucking punk, you know, <laughs> like, which is cool because like right. you need to be held in check by your friends. But like I just came out here and it wasn't like I came out here to be a musician. I just came out here because I was following my girlfriend. But once I got out here, we broke up maybe six months later, and I decided to stay. And then I realized, like, whoa, I can actually be really anyone that I wanted to be. And it, part of it is that there's, like, you're staring at the Pacific Ocean. And the other part of it is that, you you know, I was so far away from home, and there is just this vast space. I remember, like, driving up north, and I went to Mendocino County when I was, like, 20 years old, 21 years old. And I was like, oh, shit, like. I'm on some different shit now. You know what I mean? Like, this is a different journey than anything that I would have experienced had I stayed in, like, Rockville, Maryland or Gainesville, Florida. This is a completely different life. And, you know, it, it wasn't like a media. Like, I didn't make a good record for 11 years after that. But at least it started me to try to figure out some stuff and to try to reinvent myself. Were you pretty aware of the kind of personal rebranding that you were doing? I don't think so, but I, I really hated myself. Like, like that was probably, it was probably, it wasn't like a hopeful thing. Like, oh, I, you could be like a creative person who, I mean, I wouldn't have been bold enough to even think that I could be like an artist because I didn't grow up with those kind of role models. But I remember thinking that I wanted to be like an English, like a high school teacher, you know, like an English teacher in high school. I just thought, well, whoa, that's like, that feels like an interesting thing for me to do now. And like, I, I had a BS in econ and I just thought, Oh, I'll just take some classes at Berkeley and I could like kind of like kind of pivot over to this thing. But I did want to remake myself completely because I really hated myself. I, there was nothing. I mean, that might be incredibly common for someone who's 21 years old, but I really, I really just did not like myself at all. What was the thing about yourself that you, that you disliked so much? I mean, it's funny because I probably at the time could have given you like a really extensive list, but <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm sure that part of it was, was like, you know, like betraying my family, like, like being the distant family member from literally everyone in my family for not properly mourning my grandfather's death from disconnecting myself from my father. Like, you know, like a lot of those, those kind of like, familial things that you might need to do to create your own identity but at that point it was causing me a lot of like like stress and depression and that I had you know I had I had I don't know I just was was 
was like, I think I was just incredibly mean to myself regardless. I mean, listen, there's, a, there's people that, ha- that are built like this who are wildly rich, rich and successful and who like put a gun into their mouth you you know what i mean like like i i don't think that there would have been any mitigating like like evidence to prevent me from hating myself i just think that i was like a very unhealthy person at that time did the did the dislike and the hatred the self-hatred did that did you feel it recede the more creative you got i mean in some ways it really did honestly i have to say that once i started making records that were on it's like once I started having a dialogue with any kind of audience, and I, I, I was very, very small at the beginning, there was something that just clicked of just like, okay, this is what you wanted. This is hard work, but you are engaged in the work that you wanted to do. And then I started the recording studio, and then that was another thing that I think helped, which was like, okay, you wanted to own a studio since you were 14 years old, and it may not be much, but you are at least fulfilling some of the like the the potential, you know, like your some of some of your potential is now being like like fulfilled by by like hard work and just like getting better at a at a craft at two separate crafts really. One which was like learning how to make records. Well, three, three, two, but learning how to play live and then three learning how to run an arts business, which is a entirely mind-fucked thing to try to do. Yeah, I when I first heard like Far From the Fishes or whatever it might be, I my perception of you when we were in our early 20s was that you knew who you were and that you and I was still trying to figure out who I was and I and I thought, "Ah, oh, that guy is way ahead of me." Uh <laughs> But definitely not true. But but that's how we we probably think that way about a lot of people, right? You know, I look at people and I'm like, oh, they must be happy, you know, and like we just don't. That's true. Yeah, we we tend to project. Um, but you you seem to be at least very in touch with the the kind of specific species of creative fire that powered you. In other in other words, you knew the kinds of words you were attracted to and the kinds of sounds you were attracted to. Yes. 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 That's true. That probably made it easier for you to kind of cultivate the creative vision. My execution may not have been great, but I do, I do think that um, I, I, I like I had things that I was definitely interested in, and I do know that that's important because I have recorded and produced, you know, artists and bands that that I really feel like they didn't have a compass. And I, I honestly think that like. If someone has a compass, it's, I don't even, it's, it's wild. Like when I produce records, people ask me about this sometimes, like, do you like the records that you produce all the time? And I'm just like, I don't even think about it in those terms because I'm just like a doctor. You know what I mean? I'm just like a surgeon who's just going in there to like do a job. Like I, it doesn't, or a lawyer, you know, it's like, I'm just trying to do the best job that I can do. And it doesn't actually, um, it doesn't actually even come into play. What comes into play is that there's a commitment from the other side to like a musical vision, regardless of whether it's, it's a, it shouldn't be my musical vision. It's like way better. Some of the most fun I've ever had has been working on like bluegrass records, you know, or working on like like country singer songwriter records where 
there's like, they're not allowing me to do any of my usual tricks. It's like so much fun. And some of those albums are the most gratifying records I've ever worked on. So I do think that I had like at least things that I was like interested in. I, I know that. Yeah. And when you can't do your own tricks, it forces you to innovate in a totally different way. Yes, absolutely. 100%. I look at a guy like Will from Aquaville River and I go, that guy, he seems like he came out fully formed. That guy seems oh, like, yeah. right? The vocabulary, yep. the themes, the way he executes creatively. I mean, that guy just seems like he's from outer space to me. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And, and, and he did, and he was, and there are, and, and think of like Neutral Milk Hotel, you know, like there are people that just came out with almost like this, like mythology in their lyrics. You know what I mean? And Will did too. Like, it's really fascinating. Do you think that comes from, is that geographical? Do you think that's someone who just like looked around and really took notice of their surroundings and, and the frustrations of, of what they yeah. felt? It's such a good question. I really don't know. I, I mean, I think that some of this is like innate. I think that, you know, they say that there's like language pathways that are like that, that are in our DNA, you know, like that so, something about language is, and that must be the same for like a musical language. It's just like part of us, you know. I chatted with Victor from Camper Van. I talked to a geographer. I've talked to so many bands who've had to leave San Francisco, leave the Bay Area. Um, and, you know, and there are times where I mean, I'm from here and I can barely afford to live here. And I have yep. I have thoughts of like, I don't know what happens next. This is not the time to be future blind. Uh, you made a big decision to leave. Can you talk a little bit about that decision and why you have decided to head where you're heading or where you headed? Well, it's interesting. I um, I think it was it was visiting L.A., having a lot of my friends move to L.A., and then starting to work with bands that live in L.A. And then it, I, the more time I spent in L.A., I was, like, I, I kind of, like, toyed with the idea of moving to New York, like, seven years ago. And it just was clearly impossible for me to leave the West Coast. You know, it would just, I would have to sell the businesses. I would have to, like, completely disengage from my life here. And once I realized that L.A. was, like, a real possibility for me and that I actually love the city because when you're on tour when you're visiting LA it's not like an appealing place like you have to have a curated you know like like tour of LA you have to have someone that's like wants to like show you how magic this place can be but it's it's anarchy on its own so once I started seeing that side of LA that was like more interesting and more curated and and like unique I realized that I could actually leave San Francisco and that I could um, keep the studio, you know, at the time it was like the idea was, was keeping both studios going, but um, keeping the studios going and go back and forth. And it's really easy actually in, in many ways. And I still record up in San Francisco all the time or in Oakland now. But once I realized it was a possibility, I just got like obsessed with the idea. It took me about a year to put it in place. So I had to like basically hire a studio manager. I had to, to to really change the way that the studio was being run and kind of deal with some structural issues with the studio. And then I, I moved and it happened really fast. Once, once everything was in place, I got my friend left his 
his place that he was living in and basically turned the lease over to me. So it was just like within two weeks almost, I had a place in L.A. Leaving the city, was it purely a financial situation where like, I just can't really afford to be here anymore? Yeah, I mean, it was part of that, but it was mostly um, it was mostly that, that it was a challenge for me to live somewhere else. And yeah, it was felt like a challenge and it also felt like a, a cool way to mix up my life and to create a little bit of chaos. And it's been, you know, it's been great, but there's like, there's moments where living in California period does not feel sustainable. And it's really the, you know, the, the, the fire shit. And then like COVID in LA was really bad for a couple of months. It was so bad. And I just thought like, fuck, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Like, and it's the same with living in the U S where you're just like, I can't, I can't stick it out anymore. I mean, I don't have any plans to go anywhere, but there is that reality check that happens. Did you have romantic notions of I'll go to Japan? I'll go like, in other words, like get really far away. I, I never had that. Um, because I'm kind of like, I'm too realistic because of the studios. I mean, it's really how I survive. You know, I survive by producing records, running the studio, and then touring. And I have to have a base to do all of this stuff coherently. So I, I, I never really allowed myself to have, like, a fantasy disengagement from the West Coast, you know, which, for better, for worse, you know. I mean, I, I did like being in Japan, but I, I also, like, like, I like California and I like my friends here and I, and I like, I like a lot of stuff. I like that there's like weed dispensaries and I like that there's the, you know, killer beaches and that there's like a lot of open space. There's like a lot of stuff I love, love about it. Uh, how are you right now creatively? Do you feel uh, that you're pretty alight with ideas or with ideas or do you feel like, is it, is it, has the, you know, the sort of oppressive, climate of everything that's going on has it weighed down on you uh in a way that you're not as prolific as you'd like to be i feel good pretty good now but a lot of it too just with the record that i'm making now is that my partners so i i have like joint production and songwriting partners named james riato and rob shelton and they make they've made the last three records with me and they're they are just so wonderful and creative and stable and funny and cool that even if I'm having like an off time or an off day they're just there to push me and I'm there to push them and it kind of is a truly collaborative thing that makes uh it it, it's it really has made me like more creative consistently so right now I'm I feel pretty good actually What's the secret to maintaining friendships in this business? Because I know it can get brutal. I mean, I, I've, ha I've lost some people through like stuff that I've done, not that they've done, but that I've done. So I'm, I'm definitely, I've, you know, there's some marks on me, you know, like I've done some, some like, I wouldn't say unethical, but I've done some stuff that's like, it's been enough where I've lost numerous friends you know like not numerous but i've definitely i mean i think that if you run a business for 22 years and you're friends with the people that you work with like you're gonna lose people 
I mean, I lost two of my best friends seven years ago to like studio dispute. And I just lost probably my current best friend to, to like stuff that I did that he was like very smart and sweet to kind of like, you know, just say like, Hey, that's, I don't want this near me. And like, like, so there's, it's like, it's tricky. Like it's going to happen. You're going like, like it, I mean, none of this stuff is mitigating. Like I am like a, like I am a complicated and potentially agonizingly frustrating person. And I'm also potentially a really stable, loving friend who is like incredibly ethical. I mean, I just think that we all, it's all, it's all a moving target, this shit, man. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like I think that all, all of us have done shit that's like very questionable. And it just depends on how lucky you get and what the damage is when you do that stuff, you know? And like, I'm just trying to be a better person and I'm trying to do, if I have see stuff that I've done, like whether it's like manipulating people, cause you know, like you, there is, you're running an arts business and there's a lot of manipulation there because like the financial incentive are not going to align up with the sacrifice. So there's going to be like some potential cult techniques that you're going to like consciously or unconsciously utilize to incentivize very, very smart, willful people to do, to get like behind one vision. And that, that's a very damaging, questionable thing to do, you know, and I've definitely done that before. I am manipulative and I am, you know, like it's sometimes very, very honest, but I'm also like will, clearly like a delusional person. Like anyone who says sets out to be like, I'm gonna run a recording studio, and then I'm gonna build two more, and then I'm also gonna make my living from like making records. I mean, you have to be delusional to even say shit like that. You know what I mean? Much less like do it. So I don't know. I mean, I, I again, none of this stuff is mitigating because I'm like a I'm a good person and a bad person, you know, and I'm just trying to be a better person. I'm just trying to like make, I'm trying to learn. I want to like, I, I want this to be a movie where the protagonist like learns something. You know what I mean? It's actually really refreshing to hear you say like, Hey, I did these things. And, and, you know, you, you didn't say that they were misperceived. You certainly understand why the people involved got angry. Yeah, and, and, and in general, the, the wild thing is that the people that have gotten angry, they're good people. I can't, you know, they're, they're not, it's not like they had some weird shit going on. Like, like I, at some point, you have to be honest about the pain that you're causing other people. And I, I do, I, I, the only mitigating thing I would say is that, like, you, you're, there's a nexus. If you're, like, the lead singer of a band and the owner of a business and, like, the like the employer of humans you're there's a you're at a that you're the node between a lot of people's like emotional energy their money their dreams and like their like interests so a lot of shit can go wrong and again that's not like a, because there's plenty of people that pull that shit off without like betraying friends right but you are at a higher risk right, as that node of creating damage, if you are also 
mentally unwell at certain times of your life or and or weak and or selfish like you know take your pick you know when you when you did those things were you aware at the time like oh this isn't going to go over very well sometimes immediately and sometimes not for years so it's that's the other thing that confuses like like you know what it's a it's a it's, it's a motherfucker this life you know what i mean like like i like i think about my mom being my age and making like real mistakes with me and my brother and then i'm just like now i'm like okay i forgive you i get it like you're great like i get it you again like you suffer hit points you suffer damage and you are not the same animal you know what i mean it's just simply it's like a you're a different animal it's not that you're tired you're mentally tired you're gonna make mistakes and you're gonna be like 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 a weaker worse version of yourself and again this is not none of these are excuses because i i did all this i I didn't do none, none of what people got mad at me for is in dispute. I mean, I, I wouldn't dispute it. And I'm happy to take the most cynical reading of what I did as truth. I don't, I think that most people are like, you know, just like most people with when they're selling gear, they're like, oh, this is worth this. And I'm like the person that's like, no, it's worth like way less than that. Like, I just think that like everyone kind of upgrades their life in a way that to me is offensive, you know? There, it's, uh, the fa- I wouldn't dispute any of the the basic facts of what people accuse me of doing. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, I like, like I don't. I I think that like I'm guilty is what I'm saying. Yeah, and I think like there are some days where I feel like a really good human being. Other days I feel like an awful human being, and it just yep. who knows? I mean, you, and then there's that sort of in between. Um, you know, every day, every moment is different. But I get what you mean, like. The idea is to learn. And so in the end, you know, the journey delivers some kind of uh, enlightenment. And we, I want to limit the damage that I do to other people. You know, like I, I don't want to hurt people. I want to be like a, a really positive force in the world. I want to be a net positive and I don't want to hurt. I don't want to hurt anyone. And especially not the people that I love. Was there truth to the idea that you were that you were done with music, or was that or was that all just sort of was that made? I think I want. I wanted to be. I really tried to never make another record again. I really tried to never tour again. And I I really don't like when people come out of retirement. I hate it when people say <laughs> they're not going to make a record. You know what I mean? Like to me, it's just like you're just saying that you're weak and that you have nothing else going on in your life. And and you know what's funny is that that's really what was kind of happening was like, I actually started getting really depressed because live performance is sacred. It's like really good for your mental health to be tested. You're on the edge of your abilities. You're doing the thing that is often the hardest thing for you to do. You know, I always think that like me standing up in front of people for an hour and a half with an acoustic guitar and talking and playing songs, uh, that's, it's like, I, it's really, really difficult for me, you know, not, because of anxiety but because i have to be good at it and i have to like not retell the the same stories but actually communicate and pre and be present and be interesting and be like strange and wild and then do a different version of that the next next night you know so i i i really missed that i was doing something that was incredibly difficult for me and i also missed the 
feeling of working on, you know, like a, like a coherent collection of songs and then releasing them out and being judged by it. Like, I love that. And like, I, I really like miss the anxiety. You know what I mean? Like I kind of turned on myself a little bit without it. So I went back to touring because I really had to, because I was like getting sick mentally, like fucked up. Like the void was too big. It was too big. It was like way too big. Oh, and I, I really thought that producing records, I mean, that's really what I thought. I thought like, okay, I'm just going to produce records and this is going to be amazing. Like I'm going to actually like, pivot to this and it's going to be amazing i just found it unbelievably unsatisfying it was like it was incredibly unsatisfying to watch other people make mistakes i wanted to to be the one that made mistakes you know what i mean like it was important to me that i was actually the one that was like held accountable and that i was the one that was going to be like 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 busted down if the record sucked Do you know what i mean like I was on some, I was producing some records. I was just like, fuck, man, like, I'm not going to be part of this tour or part of this record cycle. And I miss that. I liked that you're, that it goes all, you know, that a record's forever, you know? Maybe you didn't understand the void was going to be as large as it was. And then there it was. And you're like, oh, that's not going to work. Yeah. It was like, it was like a, you know, like, suck me in. I was going to like end me. It was like, a, it was that. But then, it's funny, once I started, once I started touring again, it was like immediate, I was just fine. You know, it's like, I really was fine. And I didn't really even care about, like, I wanted to make records, but I stopped actually caring if anyone liked them, or if anyone was engaging with them. And then I started making weirder records because of that. You know, and so it's like, it, it, it was really super gratifying to come back to music, realizing that like, oh, okay, this is all like, this is a gravy and like I, I can come back to this it's still here and like i don't know it just felt amazing actually what does it feel like to come back to the bay area now that you no longer live here does, is that a weird sensation yeah i mean it's weird because it feels even more empty than when i left which is really like it just keeps going whatever the process is of like the creative kind of like space like emptying out like it just it feels more empty. It feels, I mean, there feels like there's a lot of money in Oakland right now. Like that, that was, this trip was just like, whoa, like Oakland feels like there's been like a lot of money like landed here. And it's like, you know, we know a lot of tech money is flowing into the city and like that, that was intense. And, and also like the, I don't know, the, the, like the, that almost every time I'm here, there's like one less person for me to see because they've already moved out. You know, it's like, it feels like that keeps kicking too. Yeah. That's, that is a trip to me too. Um, well, you know, John, I, when I spoke to you back in 93, you were so nice to me I, and I was just out of college and, uh, and you, you still are one of the nicest guys I've ever chatted with. I, I appreciate you oh, taking the time to do nice. it. Of course, man. I mean, this is, listen, we're all in this together. Like all of this is like, um, all of this is, is valuable and we're lucky to be here. I never really understood that distancing that some, you know, creative people put on like the rest of the world because like literally everyone you're talking to is the same as you, you know what I mean? Like, like we're all doing, we're all the same. We're all doing the same thing. And like, 
I just, I really, uh, I don't know. I just feel appreciative as I did then, you know, that I'm even fucking breathing. I mean, it's like mathematically very unlikely that we're even alive. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, let's, let's chat again. Let's not wait 30 years to do it. Uh, I'm, I'm here when you need me. And I really appreciate all the thoughtful and wonderful questions. Salt of the earth, that John Vanderslice. Very nice guy. I really enjoyed that conversation. I'm glad uh, that this chat uh, actually aired because the the one from 1993, uh, I'll dig it up for you guys. And you can hear uh, how I invented podcasting and then decided not to invent podcasting. I keep bringing it up uh, because I'm thinking, uh, though there's not millions of dollars waiting for me for the invention I didn't invent – uh, I think uh, you know I should be I should be recognized by the podcast community for for actually uh, setting in place the mechanism. Uh, okay, I know I didn't do anything, but I did have an idea, and I didn't follow it through. So, kids out there, uh, if you have an idea, do it, even if it means standing in a weird closet trying to avoid the hum uh, that can only be heard in a terrible apartment. John Vanderslice's new EP is called Eep, and I love it, and you will too. Go to johnvanderslice.bandcamp.com and buy it. And while you're there, pick up some other Vanderslicean uh, artifacts. Visit me online, alexgreenonline.com, and you can follow me, of course, on Twitter, at Ember's Editor, or follow me on Instagram, at Ember's Podcast, or just email me, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use and uh, leave us a nice comment, subscribe, and tell all your friends. The order feels wrong there, but uh, whatever order feels comfortable to you, do it. I think probably subscribing, leaving a comment, then telling your friends is the way to go. But if you want to tell your friends, then subscribe, then leave a comment. Who am I to argue? I'm happy uh, that you're going to do any of that stuff for us. So thank you in advance for all your hard work of pushing buttons from the comfort of your home. <laughs> I didn't mean for that to sound so sarcastic, but I realize I realize it did. And uh, my cynicism that you're hearing uh, is typically very natural for me, but it's been augmented by the fact that my state of California is currently on fire, and all we can do now is hope for rain, uh, which I think is coming. But I'll, I'll keep you posted. I'll do the weather next time on this podcast. Uh, let's close things off. Oh, before I go, please do visit Bombshell Radio, bombshellradio.com. Go there, find out what makes us tick, and learn about uh, this radio station that stays on 365 days a year, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Uh, we're always there for you, and uh, we appreciate you being there for us. Let's close the show with a brand new song, a fuller lesson, in fact, for Song for Leopold by John Vanderslice. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast, only right here on Bombshell Radio. Romantic.